work that you've done on our behalf because you love us. You've allowed us and invited us into relationship with you. There's so many things when we stop and we think about your goodness that it's so powerful in our own lives as you've received us as your sons and daughters, called us by your son's name, Christian. We thank you, we worship you, and we do recognize Christ as Lord. Father, I pray for the other churches that are meeting, opening up your word and proclaiming who you are, what your word tells us to do. Nick, as he's preaching over at Gateway and the word being opened at Blackhawk and City Church and Asbury and all the various churches around this community. May you be lifted up as Lord today to be known, to be loved, to be worshiped and obeyed. For your namesake, Father, amen, amen. Good morning. My name's Mike, I'm part of the team here. Um, before we open up Hebrews 12, um, just wanted to let you know something that is going on that uh, if you don't know exactly what it is, you just don't know. And we need your prayers for things. Uh, I, in particular, I have the privilege on Tuesday mornings of leading a Bible, st- or Wednesday mornings of leading the Bible study at the Capitol for legislators. And that is opening up some other doors into some people's lives at the Capitol. And uh, somebody asked me if I was a lobbyist. My first thought was no. Yes, I am. Because if I can get the hearts of men's, we don't need to worry about their laws. They'll be good. And so uh, this next Tuesday night, or Wednesday I guess it is, I get to open up the state of the state again this year with prayer and to pray over the, the Senate and the House and just ask God's presence be with them as, as he guides them. And they do the work of governance, which Second Timothy 2, 2 says that we should pray for those who are in authority. I told them once, I said, we're not gonna call you kings, but you are those in authority, so we will pray for you so that it says we can live in peace and we can flourish. And uh, so pray about that. Also, as I said in my prayer, that you know, one of the things that we do for smaller churches in particular, who have a single pastor, is we've told many of them, if you need a break, you can let us know and one of our team will come over and preach for you um, so that you can get that break. And so last week, uh, Lloyd was at Gateway, and uh, their pastor needed a couple week break for some things. And so Nick's over there this morning. Uh, Numbers have preached at a variety of different churches around the community to give those um, pastors a break. Because if you're preaching 52 weeks a year, it's a lot. And Nick's up 38 to 40 times a year. We've got other team that can fill in those other times and give a little bit different voice to things. And so that's one of the things that we're doing in the community on your behalf is, is we're sharing and we're opening up God's word so that other churches can, can stay healthy and their pastors can stay healthy and keep doing what they're called to do. So that's a good thing. So you should be proud of yourself. And we thank you for sharing us because it is a, it is a privilege. Can I see the slides up here? I can see them here. We've been talking um, fighting for joy. We're going to open up Hebrews 12 today, first 17 verses. And I'd like to take time just to, to read those. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1835. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. There's a thought that I, I want to share with you today, and that's that the joy found in Christ gives us strength through every season in life. It's rather strange as we start off Hebrews that There's a mixed thing. It says that there's a cloud of witnesses and then throw off the sin, connected by a comma. The cloud of witnesses, I used to think when I was smaller in my teens that there was people watching us. You know, the balcony of heaven is watching the people on earth. Until I realize that no, those are the people that have gone before us. Those are the people who in chapter 11, the first word in 12 is therefore. You have to ask, what's it there for? And it points back to chapter 11. And it's all these people who went on, who lived life for God. And there's a phrase in chapter 11 you see in front of everybody's name. It says, by faith. They believed in something they couldn't see, 
but knew it was greater than their obstacle. And by faith, they did it. The word, God's word for that is joy. And he goes on and he says, as he completes that first sentence, he says, here's these people, look at them, learn from them. Now, as they did, throw off every sin that entangles you so you can run the race set before you just like they ran the race set before them. It's amazing to think that since Hebrews was written, we've had thousands of years, centuries, and there have probably been millions of people who have walked the life with Jesus well and are now a part of that cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone before us. There are people in this room, there were people in this room last hour who have lived life really well and will be in that cloud of witnesses soon. One of those people I realized I knew. And his name was Reverend Henry Bridgman. Some people called him Reverend H.D. Bridgman. Some people called him Pat. I called him Papa. He was my grandfather. I want to tell you just a little bit about him because he understood this concept, and it's a concept that if we don't understand well as Christians, Christianity is really difficult because it's duty. But when we understand that God has set something before us that we can look to, to hold on to, as it said in verse 2, that Jesus even, for the joy set before him, he knew what was going to happen after the cross, was able to endure the cross. Papa was born somewhere around 1910 or so. Didn't have a birth certificate, so we don't really know when it was. Somewhere around Christmas. He was a preemie. His dad had died a couple of months before he was born, and they did what you do with preemies. You put him in a shoebox, and you put him in the upper oven of the wood fire stove in the kitchen. And there he lived until he was big enough to come out of the shoebox and and become the smallest of seven brothers. His mom was four foot ten. She ran the house with a buggy whip. She did pretty good with the buggy whip because she got a couple doctors, a couple of uh, lawyers, um, a preacher, a businessman, and a hobo that ran the trains across America. Because Papa was the littlest, and apparently the others thought they were smarter, Papa earned his money all the way through high school beating up kids for pay from his brothers. And apparently they saw nothing wrong with that. And it kind of set his pathway. He walked into a bar one night after he went to work in the woods as a logger. And he saw this beautiful woman sitting there. She was with the guy, but that didn't bother him. And he went up and he said, I'd like you to leave with me. Now the guy she was with objected. Turns out it was her fiance. So Papa knocked him out, they left, and three weeks later got married. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand where I get my strong will at. I did court Estel, though. They found Christ a couple years later, and Papa developed this passion for the Word. He began to understand that there was a lot more to life than his logging camp life.
this new bride he had. And he began to get an urn to, or within him to preach. So he became a, a horse and buggy circuit pastor for a number of years. He had five towns that he went through on a, on a circuit. So church wasn't always on Sunday, it was whenever the pastor came in town. Then he was a church planter in western or eastern Washington and northern Idaho, and he settled then finally in a little logging town of Darrington, Washington, and that's when I found out he was my grandpa. And he pastored there for 30 years. Up until about age seven or eight, I thought his name was Pastor because that's what everybody in town called him. And the little grin on his face, that was just always there. It was like you meet somebody with a twinkle in their eye and you wonder what they're up to. You wonder what they know that you don't. That was Papa. And what he knew was the promises of God. He knew that there was absolutely nothing that could compare to the obstacle in front of him in God. God was greater. I don't know how many sermons he preached, but I know that the majority of the ones that I heard, it seemed like, were about heaven, were about Jesus coming back, or about the strength that understanding the first two gave you to live now. And don't think I ever heard Papa complain. He was just one of those people that when you were around him, he was infectious with joy. Now, I know he had some hardships because I've heard some of the stories, but I've never heard the griping. I've never heard the woe me. All I ever heard was how good God is and oh, what a wonderful day that will be. Jesus is coming again. And he held on to that and it was amazing the strength he brought from that and called it joy. And that's what the author says. We don't know who wrote um, Hebrews. Some say it was Paul, some say it was too Greek to be Paul, some say it was Barnabas, but we'll just call it the author. And the author gives us three illustrations to help us understand this concept that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured. And the first illustration is, is there in the very first line of Hebrews 12. And it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And he uses the terminology of race. Not a short race, not a sprint, but a long race, this course set out before us called life. And he says, look at those people that have gone before you that ran the race well and learned from them. They didn't get caught up in worldliness. They didn't get caught up in that which would divert their eyes from Jesus. They didn't engage in the things that would take away who he was in their life. Now, we've got a lot of names for the race. We call it the rat race. We call it the long race. We call it the lonely race. We call it a lot of different things. What would we call it if we understood that the end of the race was heaven? What if we understood that it was Jesus face to face? 
What if we understood that all the blessings of God are true and they're ours? And the author wants us to understand this so much that he illustrates it with all the people in chapter 11 and then gives another whole section in chapter 12 to this thought. We all know that we've got this race going on, but how many of us have ever stopped and asked the question, how are we running the race? Why am I running the race? To what end? And if the end is Jesus, then how am I acknowledging him and his presence and his promises in the running of the race right now? I know sometimes I let the obstacle in front of me get bigger in my eyes. It's really not that big. But if I lower myself down to it, it becomes big in my vision. I can see over it. I can see there's space on the other side and I can walk by it. It doesn't need to bother me. But if I get tangled up in it, it trips me up. And pretty soon there's not just one entanglement, I, I find myself in between two entanglements. And my feet are tied up with cords and, and sins and, and thoughts and, and habits that I never needed to participate in if I would have made decisions based on what I know God wants me to do. And, and that's what Christ was able to do. Christ on the cross, it says in two and three, looked beyond for the joy that was set before him. What did he know that we didn't know? He knew who he was in his father's eyes. He knew that when he endured this, he was gonna sit down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact replication of God in that after he paid for the price of sin, he sat down next to God as his son. And it says, and he scorned this thing called the cross. It wasn't worth getting all uptight. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't hurt. When you sweat blood, what that means is the capillaries in your face are bursting. That happens at high anxiety, high stress, something that we pray we never experience. But he was willing because of what sat before him, because of what God was promising him, what he knew to be true. And he received it back as joy, as contentment, as confidence, as an assurance that he was, therefore he could. And that's the same promise that's made to each of us. Then he goes on starting in verse four and he talks about another illustration that we all love and discipline. If you were seven years old and I said, is discipline negative or positive, you would all go, negative. Hopefully by now, you've learned that discipline is positive, that it's the way that we are shaped. 
I've got a friend who actually played at UW and then, and then got to play in the NFL for a little while until he got hurt. He's not that big. He was like, why do you think I'm so fast? You know, because these guys are going to crush me. And I asked him one day, I said, did you ever take your own strength plan? He goes, are you kidding? They'd have thrown me out. They knew what I needed. My strength coach knew what I needed in order to while being pushed, grabbed, punched, catch a ball, and do what I was supposed to do as a receiver. I didn't get to tell them, I think we could do it better this way. He said, we just did it their way, and it always turned out we were strong enough. We were fast enough to do what we needed to do. And that's what God wants us to know, that he disciplines us because he loves us. Now, discipline's a tough word because it does have a negative connotation. And the passage is written from the perspective of that child. And that seven-year-old doesn't understand what you're doing. I remember if my mom yelled, Mike, that was just gonna be information. That was okay to respond to. If it was Michael, I better pause and find out what did I do. If it was Michael Lee, get padding. Now, I didn't get it, not for a long time. But when I got it, it was like, oh, I'm a much better person. What if we understood that at age seven? Every time we got in trouble, we knew that discipline was coming and we were gonna be a better person for it. Wouldn't that be great? Mom, I screwed up, discipline me. I wanna be a better person. No. We run from it. Because somehow, we wanna be in control. I wanna do it my way. If you got a different opinion, that's fine, but leave me out of it. I had a woman come into my office last year, and she was a friend of a friend. She wasn't a Christian. She lived about an hour away, she said, but her husband had died about a year before, and she had a three-year-old. She comes in, and her first statement is, I don't want to talk about God. He's mean. I said, okay, why are you in a pastor's office? She said, I don't know, but that's not why I'm here. So I said, okay, so tell me about your three-year-old. Well, I just can't get a handle on him. He's, he's, he does everything I tell him not to do. He calls me names. He's always using his father against me. He's manipulative. This sounds like a three-year-old. He said, does he ever call you mean? She goes, all the time. He said, are you? No, I'm a good mom. I love my child. God's not mean, is he? And that fast, the conversation switched. We never talked about our three-year-old again. All of a sudden, she knew the hardships in her life weren't because God was mean. It was because they had pointed her to a pastor's office where she could learn about freedom.
and that God loved her. And an hour later, she stepped into that relationship. It's so critical for us as Christians in our day-to-day walk to recognize that we get caught in the weeds, but that's not where we're supposed to live. 5, 6 says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord's discipline, or because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline is proof of sonship. Discipline is proof of daughtership, if there's such a word. And it's so important for us to come to terms with that. Now, some of you know that that I've, I've lived in pain on and off the majority of my adult life. And, you know, I'd venture to say that there's nobody in this room that has lived a pain-free life, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, spiritual. But I've had so many people come up and tell me either why I had pain, it was sin, or I was rebellious, or didn't have faith, or, or whatever, and then try to give me some remedy so I would be pain-free, as if that was the goal. Now, I don't enjoy pain, but at the same time, I have learned so much about who God is. I have learned so much about his patience with me, his love for me, his provision for me. I did not have empathy You couldn't scrape sympathy off my shoe until all of a sudden, I couldn't do it. Esther went back to school at one point because we didn't know if I was going to live. And God has blessed us with who he is in the midst of all of that. And we learned pain can run your life, but it doesn't have to. God is greater. There are things in your lives that you're allowing yourself to get tripped up over. And you're believing that somehow this is bigger than what God can do. And that's a lie. The joy that Christ brings us is sufficient for every season of our life. For every day of our life for every circumstance of our life, for that boss who won't give you what you need to get the job done but then yells at you. Okay, serve them. They don't determine your life anyway. God does. Serve them with joy and just bug them. Confuse them. Because who you are in Christ is so much greater than that which is set before you. Even Jesus considered the joy. And that's peculiar because he was God, right? But in in, uh, Philippians 2, 6, it says that he, he was God, but he set down his deity so he could just live as man. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have this man, Jesus, who could have picked it back up like that, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to model living so that we could watch him. 
And I love the phrases. If you, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you see Jesus doing some amazing stuff, but why? Because of this, these phrases that preceded a lot of the, the storylines, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Um, being with the Spirit, he, and he demonstrated a life dependent upon God could be absolutely victorious in light of all the stuff, the people that hated him and the people that just wanted another sign and they wanted more food and they wanted various things and they didn't get what he was about. The same people that said, hail Jesus on one weekend, the next weekend yelled, hey, crucify him. But he wasn't tied to them. He was tied to what was, before, what was coming, the joy that was before him. He understood that, yes, it was hardship, but God was preparing him for something greater. There's a phrase that I love, don't follow a leader that doesn't limp. If they haven't endured pain, they're not worth listening to. If they haven't endured hardship, they don't understand what it means to live life fully. Jesus understood those things. So the author says, fix your eyes on him. You'll be okay. Just a side note, some of you didn't grow up under healthy discipline. I want to give you five quick things that fit with how the Father disciplines us that you can use as a parent. First, when you talk to your child, find out if they know what they did. What did you do? Now, if they don't know what they did, teach. Don't correct, teach. If they do know what they did and it was wrong, ask them what they could or should have done. Redirect them to positive. There should always be a consequence for disobedience. But the consequence has to be tied to the activity or there's no association. It's just punishment. And lastly, if it's discipline, it's shaping. So there has to be affirmation. My dad did this saying, this is gonna hurt you or me more than it's gonna hurt you. I'm like, right. But I never left one of those wonderful communication sessions without me being on his lap and him affirming me as his son or mom or whoever else they had deemed it necessary that allowed those conversations. It seemed like there was a lot of them. But the point is that God loves us, so he corrects us. He shapes us. Then he throws in Esau. Now Esau had a very rich father and he was the first son. So he was gonna get it all. Cattle, oxen, land, sheep, house, everything. That was big stuff back then. Still is if you got enough of them. And he's hungry. Now Esau apparently was also good on his feet. Speaking wise, language wise, he was probably a manipulator. He lived in the moment. He was hungry so he knew that his brother wanted the inheritance, so he's like, I'll just tell him he can have it and I'll get fed and don't 
don't have to do any work, and I'll, and I'll trick him back into giving it back to me. Completely unattached to anything that was rock solid. So he tells his brother, he says, I know you want my inheritance, so tell you what, give me something to eat, I'll give it to you. Okay. So he does. But the scripture says then when he went to get it back, couldn't. And he didn't get what the author in Hebrews is talking about. He wasn't looking beyond to what God was doing. He was looking at the moment. (laughs) I can deal with this, not a problem. But it was a problem. He wasn't tied to anything real. He was tied to his own ego in the moment. He was tied to his own skill set, talking his way through anything. And he gave it all up for a cup of soup. And the author says, don't be like that. Don't live your life in such a way that you run this race with Jesus with your eyes set on the momentary and miss what he's doing for you. It's not a good trade. Philippians 4, 7, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice is the activity of being joyful. It's doing joy. It's living life out with God in mind. It's recognizing that the provision of Christ and all the promises are good for you in every season. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. If you didn't get it the first time, listen to me the second time. Rejoice, live there. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious for anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He's your Father, he's gonna listen to you. And the peace of God, which goes beyond our ability to understand, will guard your heart and your mind. And where does that start with? Rejoice. It doesn't say be happy. It says rejoice. And in the context, joy is tied to God. When you tie yourself to God, you can rejoice here because what's in front of you pales in comparison to who he is and what he is doing and wants to do in your life. Papa got cancer. Mid-70s. You know what he told me when I found out he had cancer? So I guess I get to see Jesus earlier than I thought I would. We never heard him complain. We didn't know it at the time, but... They didn't catch it in time. It was stage four. It was completely through his body. They took him in for surgery and sewed him back up. I was with him in the recovery room when he opened his eyes and he looked around and he said, 
I came back. I said, where were you? He goes, just outside of heaven. I said, I got a hunch you'll be back there soon. It's okay. A couple weeks later, he called the family together and he said, I want to have church one more time. So gathered around the hospital bed in his living room. We opened up the Bible and we sang hymns and we prayed. We had church. And the next morning, my mom's sitting next to him and he's got his hands on the rails of the bed and they're just shaking. He's just holding on so tight and his head is kind of pushing forward a little bit. And my mom kind of speaks very figuratively and, and she said, are they here? He goes, yeah. Who's here? He said, Jesus. Do you want to go home? Yeah. Go. Go home, Dad. And she said, he's, he's there, and he, with every ounce he had, he, he started to lean forward, and then his body fell back, and his spirit left, and he, he went into heaven. She said the craziest thing was he had a smile on his face. That same grin. He knew where he was going. He knew for the joy set before him, cancer couldn't hold him. It was minuscule in comparison to the joy that God would give. Where do you get your joy from? I was talking to one of our saints in the lobby after last service, and he said, thanks a lot for convicting me. He said, I didn't do it. That was God. He said, I forget. I get so caught up with the stuff, pretty soon I find myself entangled. And I don't know where your anchor is today, even as a Christian. It seems to slip and we all of a sudden put it in finances or image management or academics or our children or many other things. And then all of a sudden the market crashes or our kids fail or we find out we're not quite as good as we thought we were or somebody else thought we were. And we begin to blame God and back in I think it's 12 or 14 in chapter 12, it says and they became bitter and resentful because they weren't anchored in Jesus. They had lost sight of the author and the finisher of their faith. And they forgot that Jesus brings the strength, he brings the joy for every situation. There was another song that Papa sang a lot, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." Anybody remember that old hymn? He'd always sing it, preaching about heaven, talking about Jesus coming back, talking about the strength of God, singing little children's ditties, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The kind of guy that just, you wanted to be around. Because he was tied to Jesus. While Debbie sings this song over us, 
I don't want you to participate unless everything's good in your heart. But I want you to ask yourself the question, where do you get your joy from? Where do you get the strength to face life, to face all the struggles that will be thrown at you this week? Are they gonna entangle you? Or are you gonna be able to look beyond to God's promises, to his strength, to his joy, and deal with them head on? To endure, as you know God is shaping you into godliness and holiness. So I invite you to ponder that question. And if your answer is not Jesus, then I invite you to do something that the Bible invites us to do, and that's to make an exchange. To say, okay, God, I'll give you what I thought was my anchor in exchange for you. But then you have to do something with it. You have to choose to live it out. You have to choose to be disciplined. You have to choose to avoid the diversions that worldliness gives us so you don't lose sight of who he is. Debbie?